and welcome to this week's uh, VFX show. It is episode 189. We're going back in time to an episode that was actually covered on the uh, show when it was first started before I joined it, dear listener, and it's uh, the original X-Men. Yes, we thought we'd do a retro show and go back uh, to the original X-Men because there are quite a few X-Men, in not least of which the last one, and uh, having just been uh, lucky enough to be able to contribute uh, to uh, covering the newest film and doing some stuff at uh, SIGGRAPH and stuff, we thought, hey, what a great idea to be able to go back and look at the original one. So this is the original X-Men from 2000, and I'm joined by a panel from Europe this year, at uh, this time, I should say, uh, this year that we're doing it, um, starting with my good friend Zap. How are you, sir? Still alive, as usual. And, uh, of course, in Sweden, um, which I imagine is starting to get a little cold, but still probably not too bad. Is that right? Yeah, it's not so cold. It was incredibly misty this morning. I had to drive my kids to school, and I can hardly find my own house getting back. So, yeah. Um, so, Zap is very kind in doing this podcast because I got him accidentally bounced from a party in uh, Vancouver, and I felt terrible about it. So, I once again, like to publicly apologize for Zap not getting into the ILM party. Um, and we're also joined on the line by somebody that was standing next to me when he was being bounced from the party, uh, which is Ian <laughs> Fails, though Ian is, in fact, in London. How are you, Ian? Good, Mike. How are you going? So, just back me up here. I felt really bad about Zap, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> you did, and we tried to solve the problem yes. too, but we couldn't. Yes, it didn't help that I was then posting selfies of me taken with Darth Vader photobombing me, looking like we were having a really good time. But apart from those brief moments that were in my selfies, uh, the rest of the time we were miserable, Zap, so I, I do apologize. <laughs> well, I ended up in the pub up, pub up the street and I survived anyway, so that's fine. You, you are a gentleman, sir. Uh, honestly, most people would have held a grudge. Um, so uh, we're going back to the year 2000. It's 14 years ago. And, of course, one of the reasons that I was really interested to look at this is that I was uh, doing this panel at SIDGRAPH that, um, where we were talking about these parties and uh, it was on the new X-Men panel and, and came up in the conversation about how many uh, X-Mens that the uh, Wolverine actor uh, had done, the guy that uh, plays Wolverine. And 14 years has passed since he, Hugh Jackman, first stepped into that role and he's not meant to age. So I started thinking to myself, it doesn't look like he's really aged, does he? As I'm sort of sitting there pondering this. And I thought, I wonder if I went back to the first one, sort of 14, 15 years ago, whether he'd look dramatically different. And that, uh, that's what started me on this path. So, Zap, let's start as we do with a bit of a film review before we get to the visual effects. And uh, back in 2000, did you remember going and enjoying the film? Have you seen it since then? Um, I remember seeing the film. I honestly don't like this film terribly much. Uh, I rewatched it the other day in preparation for this. I have the version 1.5 DVD, whatever they call it, where, where there's some additional scenes. And I don't think it's a terribly good movie. It's okay. Uh, it's kind of boring uh, for me, not ever being in like an X-Men fan in any way. Uh, it, it's interesting to see uh, really how the take they have on the characters, like in the beginning here, and uh, the way Hugh, Hugh Jackman plays Wolverine here, as opposed to the when he gets more, you know, as the movies go along, he becomes a little bit more rough and tough than he is in this film, I think. Um, He's the thinking man's I, Wolverine in this, isn't he? 
Yes, and he's uh, he's very quick to like when he drives off from Rogue in the beginning, dropping her at the side of the road. He's very quick to change his mind and stop. I don't think that the kind of to 2014 Wolverine, he would drive quite a bit and then go, oh, screw it, and turn around. But he just, you know, drove 10 yards and stopped. So, little things like that. Yes. What, what about you, Ian? Well, I have to disagree with Zap. I, I remember this film coming out and, and feeling like it was sort of a mutant and comic book film that actually worked. Because I remember thinking, oh, right, this is a bit more grounded in reality. There's a bit more character development. But at the same time, they're sort of taking advantage of some of the developments in visual effects. And I actually, I really enjoyed it. I remember thinking, right, they've approached this the right way to sort of make it feel like maybe these mutants could really live in society, which I don't think some of the comic book films, you know, I mean, apart from maybe Superman in the 80s, had really done very well. I thought, yeah, I liked it. I thought that it was, um, I'm not a fan of comics. Like, I'm not a reader of graphic novels. I don't mind people that do. I'm not against the concept. I just haven't done it. I mean, I was a really, really little kid. I think I met, read uh, Scrooge McDuck or something. But, I mean, uh, you know, apart from being like a sort of a toddler I just or young kid, I never read them. So, when I came to it, I was like, I have no idea who these X-Men are or, 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 or I, what I must say, I actually did read comics uh a bit I was more actually a Hulk and Fantastic Four guy so I was kind of in the Marvel sphere in a sense but I really had no connection with X-Men so I've actually been more annoyed by the bad Hulk uh, versions Uh, over the years when I want to punch my head in a wall you know because um, yeah different discussion but yeah no, no, it's uh, it's true. The uh, the early Hulk films had more than a couple of problems. I particularly found the skipping version of Hulk um, to be <laughs> to be kind of uh, not up to ILM's normal standard. Dare I say, yeah, I hated it. Uh, although I I don't mind the skipping per se. The thing is that the movies tend to uh, sort of um, you know dumb down Hulk as a character into mm. a brute, and I think the TV series is at fault here because. The reason that Hulk never actually speaks in the TV series is that, you know, Lou Ferrigno was hard of hearing and they didn't like the way he talked. It sounded, you know, like a a hard of hearing person talking. So they didn't give him any lines. Whereas in the original comic, Hulk talks quite a bit and is introspective and etc. So that's a quite important part. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's quite important, you know, his uh, kind of... He talks to himself in third person, you know. Hulk smash is not the only thing he says. He actually, you know, ponders things back says, and forth. says more than puny God. No. He does say puny God, perhaps, but he says a lot more than just puny okay. God. So, Todd now wonderful producer, came up with uh, some really interesting facts on this film that I just was completely oblivious. Let me just run these by you because I think it plays at this early stage into the nature of the film and maybe why Ian liked it. So I don't know whether these lofty um, uh, allusions, these references, were are valid in the context of a... And I certainly don't want to belittle the important uh, figures behind them, but the idea was apparently uh, based on stuff from as early as... Uh, well, considerably, uh, as with most films, there are lots of versions of this film that were written and rejected and written and rejected, including one apparently that had uh, uh, some... Um, some particularly good Josh Whedon uh, input. But anyway, 
the the one that I'm I'm going to defer to is this sort of. Can, can I just interject there? I read that too, and I'm almost want to cry a little when I read that because it would have meant that we could have had an X-Men that was kind of Guardians of the Galaxy back in 2000. And wouldn't that have been freaking awesome? Okay, well, I think Brian Singer didn't do a really bad job, but I just want to... These references were things like uh, the idea of Xavier and Magneto being a bit like a Martin Luther King and Malcolm X relationship. Now, I said, I don't want to belittle the importance of the uh, human rights movement, but um, I think the point here is the uh, this idea of solving through... Um, I'm going to super simplify the the uh, obviously the issues in the real world, but the idea of being um, willing to fight and and also taking the attitude of uh, uh, absolutely not wanting to physically fight to achieve the ends that one uh, wants, and then also overlaying it with ideas of persecution, um, then uh, adding to that the whole McCarthyism thing about communism and uh, the feelings of alienation, which is what apparently led to uh, Rogue getting such a prominent role in this, that she was the, you know, epitome of somebody that could, uh, was alienated because she couldn't even touch her fellow mutants. Um, I don't know, do you think, Ian, that that played into your, did you feel that those lofty kind of uh, aims came through or was it kind of... Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I really love about this film is the beginning, which is Magneto's, you know, experience in, in, a, in a concentration camp. Um, you know, it's just not the thing that you expect to start a mutant comic book film with. And, you know, after that beginning, I think that's hooked you in. Um, and, you know, it's, it's made the issues a lot deeper, more meaningful um, and kind of, oh, okay, this film's a little bit different than what, what I really think. And, yeah, so I think the development to get to that point was, well, how do we make this film matter? Um, let's not just blow up things and show all the mutant powers. Let's make it important. Yeah, because McKellar apparently, and again, I'm going on Todd's terrific research, uh, responded to the kind of gay analogy or, or the mm, allegory mm. between uh, being disenfranchised and singled out uh, being different and that whole idea of uh, lack of acceptance. And so that's a, that's a lot of uh, really interesting, serious themes. I've got to say, I totally agree with you. I think that the Nazi thing at the beginning is really casts a particularly good kind of light over the actions and motivations of the characters. Even to the end sequence, um, I thought it was, it was, you know, a beautifully unanswered question, which is, it's all very well saying that you want Patrick Stewart's character to win, but if he does, um, the world may still you know, go badly for the mutants. And I, I don't think that's... I think that those sort of things are good things to bring up in movies like this. Otherwise, they are silly and they are like camp and they are ridiculous. I think, I think that is all fine and I kind of enjoyed that part of the movie. My problem was that I would have hoped that that happened to some characters I actually cared about because I don't <laughs> feel that I really care about anyone in this movie because they haven't given me any... You mean other than Hugh, re- right? Because... Because Wolverine is, you know... I honestly, you know, even in this movie, I don't even really care about Hugh. Uh, I care... I think you plaster on, you know, our current love for Hugh Jackman onto retrospectively onto then because then I wouldn't have known him from anyone. Well, so, you'd, you'd have and loved I tried him if he'd been myself, Swedish, my friend. 
Uh, sure, uh, clearly, but uh, that's a different. Um, to me, he was just a guy, uh, and he's great at what he does in the movie, etc. But it's like the character. Not talking about Hugh Jackman, but not talking about the character okay. Wolverine failed to make me really, you know, care much about him. Interestingly, on the DVD, they actually have his um, his you know uh, what do you call it audition tape, and he plays in the audition exactly the same. I mean, it's not the same beats, but it's pretty darn close to what he actually plays. And the audition is in the truck when he's with Rogue before he gets thrown through the windshield. And, um, mm. yeah. But from what I remember, Hugh Jackman was nearly not in the film. It was definitely a different actor was cast as Wolverine. Um, I think he's, it's Doug Ray Scott. And Hugh Jackman literally began, like, and I don't know the exact time, but weeks before production started. Three weeks into filming. Yeah. Oh, sorry, three, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're so right. He nearly didn't get a Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. No, it was Russell Crowe, Aaron Eckhart, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Viggo Mortensen, Edward Norton, yep. Keanu Reeves, and Gary Sinise, according to IMDb, was the choices. Yeah, I wouldn't say, I, uh, I got to say, it's a really tough job, uh, as it turned out, because... Here we are, 14 years later, seven films later, and Jackman has to be in the kind of shape he was when he was back then. Um, he does He's look better, a- better shape now, actually, yeah, he does, if you look yeah. at the new one. But um, I've got to say, uh, I, yeah, no, I really liked him in it, but I'm, I, am, I am super, super biased. Okay, well, let's move to the visual effects now. Um, and we've got a bunch of, well, maybe Ian, you can give us a rundown. Um, I was going to start with Digital Domain, but on who contributed. Well, it's, it's one of those films as well in the 2000s where it's, they really went with a lot of shops. So the overall supervisor was Mike Fink. And then maybe the, the main houses were Digital Domain, um, Cinesite, and um, Kleiser Walzak, which I probably pronounced incorrectly. Um, and sort of then you sort of had other, film, other um, studios like Matt World Digital, Hammerhead, uh, Core Digital Pictures. Um, I'm probably leaving a few out, Illusion Arts, P.O.P. Um, sadly, some of these studios aren't around anymore, um, which oh, is you know, part of the industry, I guess. But, um, yeah, so in, in many ways, one reason I enjoyed the film was I thought that Mike Fink and the, the VFX crew did a good job of getting so many studios to work on the film, but, um, you know, each do their own little thing. And, and, in fact, you know, these studios started becoming known for, you know, Kleiser became known for doing Mystique and that morphing and, and um, transformation stuff. Um, yeah, so it was quite a big show in terms of the different studios involved. Yeah, it's funny though when you look at the budget, don't you? I mean, if you didn't know and you you had that description today, the budget, you'd think, but the whole film had a budget of what, 75, is that right? 65 million, something like that. I, I read 75 somewhere, yeah. Yeah. And other interesting thing about it is just how much uh, local U.S. domestic box office dwarfed overseas, which again, not the same these days. Um, but yeah, so it's a it's okay. It's a film of its era. Um, but let's discuss some individual effects. What do we think? I mean, mistake you've already brought up. Let's start there. I thought from the Wogo, I thought that was an incredibly well realized uh, character. I mean, I loved the transitions, but also when she's just in makeup, I thought it was terrific special effects makeup. Um, the fighting sequences were cool. Yeah, the makeup work, sorry, was done by FX Smith. And you, you're right, there was a really nice um, decision here to do that sort of feathery movement for her transformations. 
um, which I think in the later films, you know, because they could advance the techniques a bit more, became a bit more 3D and geometry based. But here, you know, yep. I'm, I'm guessing, and I I'm, I'm, can't remember the exact details, it was much more of a 2D solution, but still gave you that, that feathery look, which really at the time, you know, no one had really seen too much like that. So, and it kind of, you know, it was kind of after the big morphing craze of the 90s. Um, and it was something a bit different to look at, I thought, at the time too. Was there any particular effects in the film that you did like or didn't like, Zap? Well, I must say uh, this film has a, an interesting look. Uh, I looked at my DVD uh, only last night on a fairly good screen. It was a DV- just a DVD, not a Blu-ray. It was the 1.5 version, you know, the, with some extended scenes. And it's quite evident, even on the DVD, this was shot on film, fairly grainy film, yeah. uh, I, I should add to. And that some of the effect was kind of maybe not added so much grain to as maybe they should have to match the film. So there was a little bit of that kind of standing out. And also, if you remember a few years ago, you and I had discussions with the word gamma in them a lot. And I almost feel like a lot of the comping in this film was basically done in something that looks like an sRGB space with all the errors in blowouts and stuff you get. Like, I never had a single case for me of Cyclops eye beam looking even remotely realistic. It really looked like something you had thrown on, you know, and tried to comp in the wrong color space and tried to make it look glowy and shiny. So I think that for me is kind of the, the worst effect. Uh, and uh, a lot of the shiny stuff, also this um, like plasma effect that Magneto is generating with the the thing he borrowed from Contact, the spinny metal thing, which turns people to mutant. Uh, the uh, it was sphere very of pain be- thing, yeah. Yeah, it was very beautiful, like in the shape of the this wavy kind of emanating thing. I, I like that look, but something in the kind of compositing of it into the scene made it at least in certain shots, it actually kind of went from shot to shot, uh, how well or bad that looked. But in in some shots, it, it, the comping was looking very, like I'm smacking something together in sRGB space kind of looking thing. In other shots, not so much. I don't know if that effect was divided out by houses who did it differently, but it, it, like the, the certain shots of that plus the eye beams would be the things that I consider the, the worst effect in the movie. It's interesting you should say that. I mean, obviously we're going to be criticizing stuff pretty harshly because we have the benefit of you know, 14 years of, um, uh, and so I'm not saying that at the time this was, uh, really, uh, you know, badly done or anything, but the one that just, no, I, I think it's really important to stress how far we have come. And it's like, it's not really their fault from the time that it looked the way it did, because compare it to any other film of the era, it's really, you know, on a high level, but it, it's at the same time, it really speaks to how much we've learned since then to do things in, in different, much more realistic ways. Yeah. You know the one that really kills me. It's um, it's the uh, senators uh, turning into water sequence. Um, I didn't like it mm. then, and I don't like it now. But I can actually articulate a bit more why I don't like it now. Um, they've clearly mapped on the face or the reference stuff that they got onto some geometry, and there are specular highlights that were on his face. In particular, if you look at the sequence, and and I, I'm sorry to do this to you guys because I know you're listening to an audio podcast, but. He, there's a point on it where he's going to turn to water and so he's still looking pretty much like an actor and you know that he is an actor. Um, and he has this uh, really, really strong specular highlight on the side of his face. 
and that's on the side-facing camera near his nose. The trouble is, as his watery form causes his body to deform and become considerably more water-like, the specular highlights don't move. Like they, you know, in other words, the wave of his body, the curvature of his face changes, and uh, guess what? All the spec highlights are baked in. So it just looks like what it is, which is like a texture map. And then I don't think there's an, uh, any kind of subsurface. I mean, there probably wouldn't be, right, given the time. So we don't have the kind of realism that you want. Now, at the end, they cut to real water, which was shot um, by cutting mm. open a bag on a bench or opening up like a fish tank, effectively. And, and the real water spilling out is fine. But then, of course, it looks like clear, plain water. And so just aesthetically, like from a design point of view, in no way, shape or form did I ever think that it made any sense that a person would just become clear water. Like I, I maybe they just did it to not be gory, but it just seemed like a really odd thing that he just turned into clear water. And so when you're trying to do something that doesn't seem logical and then the effects are like really struggling to make it happen, you just you're lost at both fronts, right? Like, I don't want to go there because it makes no sense, and I'm not going there because the tech isn't good enough. Although, I must say, that is one of the, from, for me, that's one of the effects that actually, it's not perfect, but it's one of the, what I would, I would label as one of the sort of good effects in the film because I think no, with the, with with the, within the reason reason of the technology they had they try re, you know they have some CG I, I, I remember some how, how they were doing the HDR reflections on the watery blob around him I could agree with the face problem it's they clearly are restretching just the the uh, the original footage of the actor and the highlight problem is absolutely there I agree uh, but they there's also this watery cocoon kind of around him him, which is CG, which looks not great, but reasonable for, you know, 2000-ish. And, you know... I'm sorry, uh, it does, just doesn't. I, I just, I understand what you're saying. You're saying, given the technology they had, it looks as good as right. one could expect. They just should have done something else. Like, it was just the wrong thing very, to do. It's a very adventurous shot, isn't it? Because from what I remember, no, is it actually lingers... Well, it lingers on him a long time. There's no cuts. No. And there well, might be a cut back they to go to the hand. They do the hand shot yeah. and then it comes back. Yeah. But it just but, fails. But that's, yeah. If the technology that, can't you know, do it, don't do it. Like, I mean, it's, you know, like you've got to pick your battles. With technology, you have to pick your battles. And back then, it wasn't a matter of you can do anything. They didn't have good fluid sims. They didn't have subsurface scattering. They didn't have like enough stuff to be able to pull that stuff off successfully. Do it in a wide shot. Do it anyway, but just don't do a close-up like that. Yeah. The, the thing that I actually agree with Zap, I kind of liked the shot because I felt oh, like it Lordy. stayed. Really? It stayed, well, but partly because it lingers and it's a long shot and you're like, well, what's going to happen? And then I thought the only thing that didn't work was when it becomes real water because you're like, oh, okay, well, they've just cut a bag and made it real water. It kind of reminded me of the way the door would shut on the abyss tentacle a little bit, you know, back in... Well, uh, although it would, maybe it was that. more successful in the, the abyss, I would say, yeah. Yes, and way it's a different more kind of thing there. But um, I still like the shot, but I, I definitely think, you know, obviously these days they do it differently. Um, Mike, you're saying, well, if it didn't hold up to photorealism, then don't take that approach. So what do, what do you think of the opposing shot when he comes out of the water and is kind of blobby and weird, which I actually also think worked fairly well and he kind of turns more normal. I think that looked up. worked much better, right? But on that shot, you got the gills, which is where your eyes yeah. go. And then you cut away to like lots of reactions and it's kind of funny and there's the naked thing and there's like a bunch of distractions. It's all the things you want, right? 
get your eye to look at this thing, not that thing. Um, let's cut away, let your mind complete it, make it more complicated than it is. Not, hey, this shot isn't going to work very well, so let's just sit on it and then there's nowhere to hide. And then if it doesn't work, well, we spent so much money on it, we're just going to include it anyway. Uh, no, I just think it was a complete fail for, not complete fail as in like it was useless, complete fail as in it failed on both fronts. It just didn't succeed and it shouldn't have been in the in the film. It shouldn't have been designed that way. Um, or if you did just not like the shot, then you just come up with a new cut, a new way of making it work. It was just a design problem. Anyway, I, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on this because I didn't like it then. I remember distinctly not liking it then. Um, that's how much I didn't like it. I didn't like it when I reviewed it again. I then saw the making of, because uh, there's a they've released the making of from Digital Domain. Still didn't like it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there are really great people that worked on it, and I really appreciate the hard work they put into it. Just for me, un, yeah, total fail. Just not, not, no, shouldn't be in the film. Hey, um, okay. I, I don't think you get points for trying either. You get points for succeeding. So, is there anything else that, uh, Ian, you liked or disliked that you uh, want to argue with me about, my friend? <laughs> I'll tell you which sequence that I think, as a whole, I enjoyed, but I still watch it today and cringe a little bit, which is when the X Men are trapped in the head of the Statue of Liberty. And they've been cornered by Magneto with his metal skills. And they've got, you know, bits of this metal wrapped around their necks and arms. And you can clearly see that it's foam rubber. (laughs) And I I mean, it is an effect. And I mean, I just think, wow, today we would absolutely clean clean that up, you know, or, or make those wraparound CG. And I mean, you know, they're foam rubber so they don't hurt the actors, but... I just still today I cringe whenever I watch that. Um, the whole sequence, though, on top of that Statue of Liberty, I think totally works. But it's just that one little aspect I just can't watch. I didn't like that it was on the Statue of Liberty. I don't know. That just seemed right. corny. Camp to me, yeah, corny. Yeah, I was actually waiting on them for go all Ghostbusters two and yeah. starting walking around the whole statue, <laughs> but they they stopped just <laughs> short of that. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. In the original one, they were going to be attacked by sentinels um, in the original scripts uh, at this point. There's a bunch of stuff that didn't end up coming until seven films later. But yeah, no, I didn't think that was... I mean, it was a nice thing that it was at night. That makes life a lot easier for the visual effects. And I didn't... I think the rubber thing is pretty funny. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, uh, I have to agree that I don't think... Yeah, there are things today that you would change. Um, and it's a really interesting point, actually. There's... It's come up in a conversation that we're going to be doing an article on FX Guide about, but I won't preempt that entire conversation, but it just comes down to when you discuss visual effects these days, it's easy to think of visual effects as being just this amorphous mass of stuff that we all just refer to as all the stuff that's done in films. But in reality, some of a large proportion of what is visual effects that comes out of the visual effects budget done by the artists that we know and love are wardrobe, uh, set extensions, uh, you know, props, uh, you know, fix-ups, digital makeup floors, covering up, you know, holes in ears and, um, you know, tons of other stuff. And and uh, the bit that's visual effects, 
you know, the kind of its core is actually a dramatic subset. The shot count gets up so high because they're all the rubber bits of steel that have to be turned into real steel. And because that set didn't do the thing that it was meant to do and the, the person looked in the wrong direction and just a ton of, you know, flyaways on hairs on actresses and new digital butts because some actor wanted to look more buff than they were. Like a ton of stuff that is just isn't effects in the special effects sense, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's a lot of more of that these days. Uh, and I mean, companies like our friends at Lola has made a whole career of these invisible tweaks. Uh, and um, I don't think much of that was done in this movie and the stuff that was done, which was mainly like healing of Hugh Jackman or putting little veins on Rogue and whatever, whoever she was touching, was not terribly successful. Like the in the beginning when the wound on his head heals, that looks like something I could have my, you know, 16-year-old son probably do better in After Effects in an afternoon. No, no offense because they didn't have, you know, the tools back then, but it, it looks kind of like, yes, it glides together and kind of fades out and some of the the vein stuff they add while it's all tracked and nicely it's like the lighting doesn't really work on those veins some shots are good but there's a couple of shots where, where those kind of makeupy uh, kind of or fake digital makeupy things are not terribly successful in this movie and it's just another area where we come so far i will say this though when uh, rogue is stabbed by wolverine her stabbing that uh, diminishes thanks to Wolverine's um, life force. That, I thought, was actually pretty well done. I agree with you. The earlier stuff with Wolverine wasn't. um, It did look like it was a sort of reduce and then fade off to the point of just being almost a super simple 2D effect at the end. Um, And I was going to really criticize that, but then I thought that her shoulder injury was pretty well handled, actually. Agreed, actually. Hey, um, I was just handed a piece of information by our research team. Um, apparently, Mike Fink himself admitted to having not been 100% satisfied with his work on X-Men, even though he was nearly nominated for an Oscar. And and just before we get too carried away on getting medieval on uh, poor um, digital domain over uh, that uh, water sequence, apparently it took 36 hours of frame uh, to render all of those elements. So they were trying pretty hard. You're the only one going medieval on it, so hey, we're innocent. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, what about you, Ian? Anything that uh, uh, you really would like to highlight as being sensationally great or evil? I, I one one sequence that I really liked was the um, um, X jet or, or sequences that involved the X jet, and I thought there were a few different ways that it was done. Um, it was first introduced, you know, in the um, Professor Xavier's mansion, and actually, from memory, that was sort of more done as a as a matte painting by Matt World Digital, you know, using digital domains um, CG XJet, and also using um, a miniature perhaps that was built. So, so that you know, that was one approach that they took to the XJet, and then you sort of had these other flying sequences as, as approaching New York, um, and you know, I thought they were convincing and, and didn't sort of necessarily jump out as a obvious CG jet. And part of that perhaps is that there are lots of sort of in-cockpit practical photography done that, um, you know, is still done today, especially, say, if we look at Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, but I just thought at the time that that kind of worked really well and you, you sort of felt like you were on the ride with these X-Men as well. I think Matt Well Digital does 
did spectacularly good work. So if, uh, yeah, I mean, if it was a matte well digital matte painting, it would be like, well, that would explain it. Those guys have yeah. just spectacularly good eye for nailing what would work. I mean, I can remember still seeing stuff that they did in Casino and not believing that what I was seeing. It was just, uh, you know, clearly they were given a set of eyes and uh, and uh, stuff that I you know just didn't get at birth because they could somehow miraculously produce the illusion of uh, stuff that uh, that almost nobody else did. So, yeah. Um, I've got to say... So, like, I, I, I must agree that the, the jet stuff worked uh, pretty well. Uh, another CG item that worked a lot less well for me was Toad's Tongue, which looked very CG to me and very like classic ad hoc computer graphics where you try to turn the knobs randomly until it looks good. You know, I, I can just say physically based rendering for the win and just another area where we come so far because that was completely hit and miss between the shots if that looked even remotely real or completely wrong. When it was coming out of his mouth, it was a rubber thing that he was holding in his teeth as it were, right? But I, I had a problem with it as well. I thought it was not only not 100% successful, but it just seemed so ridiculously long and so ridiculously strong um, yeah, that agreed. it was just daft. It was like, uh, it didn't seem like a good villain for that point of view. I mean, it seemed like a fun character, but it was just like... Ray, Ray Park Ray Park is awesome, you know, uh, as a guy. And, and by the way, do you know what happens when a toad is struck by lightning? <laughs> The same thing, the that, same happens thing that happens to everything else. Sorry. No, 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 no. It's it, it croaks. It's what? Oh, God. It, oh. It croaks. I walked into that one. Okay. Um, yeah. I don't think you would have him as a... Was it the second one where we had the uh, puff of um, kind of imploding uh, vapors when Nightcrawler, was it, jumps around? Yes. Now, that was a cracker of a darn effect. I mean, that really was just off the dial good. The way that it sort of implied an absence of volume that caused the smoke to puff into the middle because the uh, air was rebalancing. Like, whoever did that was spectacularly good. Um, so, but yeah, I sort of agree that this wasn't really, um, uh, you know, so successful. Um, I thought the... Oh, the other thing I noticed in watching some of the behind-the-scenes stuff that just never occurred to me before... Halle Berry, when she's doing her um, full-on storm stuff, she's blind. Like they have in the sort of camera tests of her doing stuff, there's always someone holding her hand because she just can't see anything with the white contacts in. Of course, you don't notice it when she's filming. And in this one, her eyes pulse between seeing and white when she was going for Toad. Just what made me think of it. Um, but yeah, she when she puts the contacts in, she can't see a thing. I think they only used it once, also from what I read, because she hated it so much, and they did it in CG for the for the rest of the as a 2D effect, for like all the other shots, which I think is fine, and that's what they do these days. Um, Maybe not successfully in this particular movie, but since they have done it completely uh, convincingly, I think. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I felt really sorry for her, actually, because like, it would be really hard to act on set if you just couldn't see where you were meant to be doing things. And and then they're not something like, you you know, a pair of glasses or something you can like lift, lift off between takes. Getting contacts out would be really hard. Yeah, those things are not, th- those whole, cover the whole eye kind of things, they are not fun things to get off. No, no, really not fun at all. I've got to say, any character in any sci-fi show from... Uh, Star Trek Next Generation to this that wears a visor 
that has special powers looks ridiculous to me. I don't think anyone's yet ever made that visor look believable or good. But that's just, um, I don't know. I would tend to agree. Yeah. I, is it I, because you think they just stand out too much in a normal crowd, or is it is it because of the actual powers that come from the visor? Or um, I don't know, it just doesn't look. It just it's a kind of a hard thing to sell. Like someone's wearing a wraparound sunglasses, and it just I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't look particularly good. They look a little odd when they're just on set most of the time that way. And then um, uh, I, I mean, I totally agree. It's not as it's just a sort of an art direction thing. It's not a problem like the compositing mm. that you, you highlighted, um, uh, Zap. But yeah, it's not uh, not my favorite thing. I will say this though, that there's there's a lot of good fight sequences and physical effects stuff in this that I presume they just had to have done with really good stunt people, um, including the fight in the snow, uh, a bunch of the fights at the um, uh, where, you know, Toad is like knocking people around. There is one sequence where... Um, uh, or a couple of sequences where people get knocked back and they seem to be on wires, kind of traveling horizontally for an awfully long time before they break through a wall. But nevertheless, um, there would have been a heck of a lot of rigging uh, going on to get that kind of stuff happening. And then the Wolverine, um, uh, Mister, um, what I'm trying to say, the fight sequence that they had with Mystique and Wolverine, and she just turns back into the... Um, the suit of, well, you know, her normal form, I guess. Uh, yeah. That's that's really good choreography. I mean, that's like really uh, cracking stuff, given that, you know, Wolverine's such a threat. I think that, that sequence I love too, um, partly because of the, the stunt work, but there's this really interesting use of comedy in that um, and also music, um, really sort of little jumpy, little stuttery music that I, I really remember. And I thought that sort of added to the comic scene and, you, do you remember later in that sequence, um, um, Cyclops says, how do we know it's you to Wolverine? And he goes, you're a dick. And, like, I remember <laughs> watching that in the cinema and, like, everyone just laughed like they had been holding in a really big laugh. And, um, you know, that kind of – that's also another reason I thought the film worked quite well is there's just enough sort of humour Um but, you know, in the middle of this sort of superhero action film. I mean, that's just one of those standard yeah, sequences. I, yeah, and that particular line is one of the two things that actually survived from the Joss Whedon version of the script, that and the, the butchered toad, toad line that we mentioned before, where they never got to the actual punchline. Um, so uh, I, I'm actually sad there weren't more, being, uh, you know, as we've seen how well it can work with lots of comedy in it, like, you know, again, Guardians of the Galaxy. So I, I'm kind of really crying over the fact that we didn't see uh, the more of the Joss Whedon stuff because it's like, that, that's like the best part of the movie. And it's like, maybe we could have gotten a whole movie that is like that. So, yeah. What, did, what, um, what I sort of funnily sort of found myself doing is thinking, oh, they've changed the actress that's playing Mystique. Because I've now so associated that with the uh, <laughs> the I know it's the first class version of her, but after the last film and stuff, I was like, oh, I feel really sorry for Rebecca that she got uh, cast out of this film. And then I realised that, of course, in the timeline of the film, she shouldn't be out of it, and uh, she's been, I guess, um, replaced by an actress with incredible uh, box office uh, punch. But um, if there hadn't been a Hunger Games. Would Rebecca have still been Mystique? Uh, 
in the last film. I don't know. I thought she did yeah, a good job. Yeah, that's hard to tell. She's playing a younger version, isn't she? Jennifer Lawrence. Oh, that's what I'm saying. It makes like, sense in yeah. that what they did, yeah. that they had to use her for first class, yeah. right? But yeah, now, yeah. I think if they had a mistake that isn't played by Jennifer, that there would be a riot. Probably now with the Hunger Games, etc. But I, I'm actually surprised how... I, I knew it was different actor intellectually, but how much the like the whole makeup and turning people blue thing kind of makes uh, everybody kind of look the same in a sense. So um, I didn't really that didn't bother me that much, even though I was quite recently I saw the the latest X Men. It actually took me a while to realize, oh yeah, that's that Rebecca chick. I almost forgot about that. So it's kind of you know she's doing a great job too, being blue. Um, I do think that we owe this film quite a lot, right? Because I think if this film hadn't been successful, then um, uh, we would have really not got to the other films that came out there. I mean, it's a very complicated process as to who owns what property now, right? But this was successful enough to validate going down superheroes. But I will say this, they, like, I think there's been a couple of other instances of this, were very clever in not sticking religiously to the costuming and stuff from the comic book. I mean, having them kind of in black leather and looking kind of cooler and generally not in like, you know, spandexy stuff is is always a good move. And I I think you you have this problem when I think we've discussed this that you need to kind of get serious at some point and not treat the material like you're kind of embarrassed by it for audiences to be allowed to enjoy it as much as that they do, which is what, exactly what of course the Dark Knight did. Yeah, I think this is, this is a good move uh, in general, although sometimes it can go overboard, like people, including myself, are not a big fan of the, you know, the, the latest incarnation of the Superman costume, which is almost almost black with like no, no monochromatic and like, are you afraid of the fact that this actually is Superman somehow? I don't know. Uh, and trying to make Superman with all the dark, tony stuff, it's like... That's not what Superman is, really. I think Superman would fit more in a kind of, again, a more Guardians of the Galaxy, wacky world. Or I mean, it's hard to see past what the, the, the 70s movies actually did, which I think kind of nailed the tone for a Superman movie. So it's really difficult to do something kind of gritty with that that inherently positive character it's much easier to do something gritty with batman which is inherently like a you know a darker character yeah and i mean it's even referred to in the film isn't it which you obviously know which is i think they're on the x jet and yeah. um wolverine struggling with preferred his yellow spandex yeah 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 and you know that tongue-in-cheekness i think totally works in this movie as well yeah, yeah. I, I think it is wrong and i'm partly saying this because of the hate mail i got over my complaint over the ginormous chin in that character in Guardians but it does prove that just because something's in a comic book and works in written form drawn by a nice artist doesn't mean that you should literally interpret it when you go to putting it on the screen it doesn't hurt to actually make them look kind of uh, more believable speaking of Guardians uh, don't you think that a spacefaring technology has the capability to make something in the size of an AA battery that outputs 1.5 volts just saying, based on what you were saying in the Guardians VFX show, like, where does he get the batteries? I think there's technology to solve that. The real failure point on a Walkman is actually the foam covers of the headphones. They disintegrate <laughs> rapidly. So if you haven't listened to the Guardian show, I was complaining about him listening to uh, music and not having any AA batteries. But apparently, 
the foam on the headphones? Is that your theory that it would have actually decayed somehow? Oh, every every Walkman uh, I owned in the eighties, uh, that was the first thing that went. That the foam on the headphones basically disintegrated. Right. Okay. So they could make AA batteries, but not foam. Well, they could make foam, but clearly it was the original foam. Can't you tell? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should bring this up in each VFX show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, then. So, look, um, uh, I think that uh, it's remarkable to think of the legacy that this film um, uh, set out. I mean, there's been an enormous amount of work generated for visual effects artists in the uh, the films that came. Oh, it's one thing I wanted to, to touch on, actually, that I wanted to point out. actually got worse after this film. I think in this film, Wolverine's claws look pretty darn good. I yeah. think I'm right in saying in the, the first of the Wolverine films, which I never know what the name of that is, they were terrible. Um, they looked really, really fake and really, really digital and really unlike anything that was anything but CG. Uh, and it's rare that when you make a film with a few you know, years of later technology that you've got something that's solved, that you unsolve it. But... Um, you know, well, there the is a couple course, of yeah. shots, though, where it clearly looks really bad in this movie. And it's specifically, it's when Mag- when they're in this kind of swirly light thing and Magneto is bending his claws, that looks completely unrealistic. It, it just looks, um, you know, absolutely ridiculous. In m- m- many shots, they're fine, but there and a couple of others, it's just really bad. Um, I think think maybe it works, Mike, in this film and and some of the subsequent ones because they really did have good prosthetics um, that maybe they're actually using in some of the quick shots and cuts. But then in the later films, like the first Wolverine film that you're talking about, which I totally agree, they pretty much just had the CG claws. And I just don't think it worked as, as well because they didn't really have anything to base the actual claws on. Well, I think the other thing is that they were ridiculously long in the um, in the yeah. X Men Origins Wolverine, which is the worst I think of any of these X Men films. They got to be like you know me- meters long, and it was uh, kind of ridiculous. I mean, I think they're good as claws. They're not good as like uh, long bread knives that uh, well, not even bread knives, small samurai swords really that seem to be coming out of his fingers by uh, by X Men um, Origins uh, for Wolverine. I think actually, you know, we should probably um, sort of focus a bit on some positive things because because <laughs> we are being pretty harsh on these guys. Can I just point one small tiny thing that I thought they did just super well that is the sort of stuff that I liked when I saw it and I still liked it now. Um, when we first see Magneto, he's got a um, set of Newton balls clicking on his desk and when you first see it, you kind of just don't pay much attention. Then you realize that there's nothing there and it's just he's doing it. And then as he leaves the room at the end, they just fall off the desk because he's no longer uh, controlling them. And they're little touches like that that I thought visual effects did really, really well. Like it's not the central point of the, of the scene, but it's a nice little point of interest. It's incredibly well done in terms of I couldn't do it any better any, any other which way. Um, doesn't need to be anything more than it is. Now, obviously, it's pretty easy to render balls, but that's not the point, really. It's just a great little thing. And those little um, touches, I think, is what tends to endear you to an effects film like this. And you got anything that you really like that we can... I just feel like I've been a bit harsh on these guys. <laughs> well, I don't think we've talked about Cerebro yet, which is, you know, the, the thing Xavier uses to find mutants and sort of 
communicate with them. And they really seem to establish the look for the rest of the films too. Um, so you've, you've got the actual space that they're in, um, but then also, you know, as he goes into Cerebro, it sort of does that red and blue, I believe, look and has that kind of like uh, misty atmosphere that I actually thought looked kind of cool at the time. And I think Cinesite um, worked on that using a lot of um, 2D comp solutions. So, um, yeah, I'd call that out as one of my sort of more favorite effects in the film. I'd give you that one. I think that was that was good. It was appropriate. What about you, Zam? Well, both yes and no in the sense it's completely appropriate and it it uh, it's, it's absolutely fine really for what Cerebra is intended to do. And one thing I really like about it is they, they it kind of everything is kind of swirling around in the 3D, but some things hold for like an extra frame so you have the time to kind of look at this one as it's flipping through the, the characters of the world trying to find people. Some of them kind of hold for just a tiny second more, which I think is an interesting like beat, like it's kind of focusing, no, not that guy, not this guy, not that guy. Uh, so that the whole thing there conceptually is completely fine. The only, you know, and this is super minor, um, you know, whiny nerd complaint but it looks it what it is it's a bunch of 2d cards kind of things it's not like they're not flying in 3d they're flying as 2d cards is that really a problem no not really it's kind of makes sense that it would be in the sun i don't know it's in his brains it could be anything but um it's like have you seen a bunch of 2d cards once you immediately recognize this is a bunch of 2d cards i think they did the absolute best they could with 2d cards so you know because it feels we don't want to sit and you know crap all over this, this amazing work so but the nature of this show makes us complainy much more complaining than we really should be so i i want to kind of make a standing ovation for everybody who works on this and it's a super detailed thing so it, it's the design of the thing the, the basic idea is absolutely fine it's just that have you seen cards once you kind of recognize it Normal people maybe haven't. We nerds have. So, you know, it's not a problem, actually. <laughs> At the time I watched it, I thought it worked really well. Um, if you'd said that to me before I'd rewatched it in the last week, I probably would have agreed with you, but I didn't, so I didn't. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if you were doing it today, you'd be aware of that, I guess. But, yeah, no, I think it's still a win for the... It's it's kind of remind me, you know, of the intro to Moulin Rouge, where yeah. they're flying through all sorts of stuff, and it's super obviously 2D cards. Is that really a problem for most people to see the movie? No, it's not. It's just because you and I have seen a bunch of 2D cards, and our brain goes, oh, that's a 2D card, and it's really our, our fault, not the fault of the guy making the effect, right? It's Our brains are just too wired like that. Well, we're going to have to finish it up uh, a little earlier than normal this uh, time because of our international uh, connections. But I did want to flag one piece of uh, trivia that was handed to me by our uh, producing team. I was talking earlier about that great fight scene that I really liked uh, between Wolverine and, uh, and uh, Mystique. And it was apparently, I don't know if this to be true, but I've been told this, uh, Rebecca actually had a birthday. And so she was uh, doing uh, tequila shots. Unfortunately, when she was filming that fight scene, she managed to throw up blue-coloured vomit all over uh, Hugh Jackman because she had all the chemicals from her makeup uh, on her mouth and stuff. So, 
So I can imagine Rebecca probably doesn't mind that she isn't having to get into that makeup again uh, and continue on with it. Maybe that's a, that's not a career high for her. But uh, hey, I want to thank you guys so much for being with us uh, on the show. We really do appreciate it. Hey, um, Zap, where can people uh, track you down and uh, where are you at? Uh, I post randomly on my Twitter at MasterZap or people can follow me on the Facebook if they want to see uh, me flying quadcopters and other boring things. Uh, so that's maybe the easiest place to find me. There will be coming, I should pre-warn you, uh, on the Autodesk area, the Autodesk rendering team, which I'm part of, will be setting up a, a blog where I will be participating. So that will be a thing to look for when we have it set up it will tentatively calling it the render alliance uh, which is basically us in the 3ds max rendering team that will be posting blogs because people have asked what happened to my mental ray tips blog which was kind of mm. active since i don't specifically work with mental ray in the same way it feels kind of wrong for me to kind of post there because it doesn't make sense to you know doesn't really fit so this will be a place where I will show up in the future. Uh, as and by the way, I, I think your impersonation of Cyclops when you've got that uh, kind of VRE helmet thing on for your <laughs> uh, for your <laughs> your work with uh, drones is pretty cool. Yeah, I look very Cyclops in those pictures. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and Ian, uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at VFX Blog, and obviously um, in and around FX Guide and FX PhD, and. Um, you'll see a bunch of stuff coming out of my visit to London um, in the next couple of weeks and months as well. So I look forward to writing those up. Go to uh, to Covent Garden and go to Pretty Green and get me a cool T-shirt, will you, while you're there? Yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, thanks so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Um, we do retro shows from time to time. We have some really good stuff coming up, though, that isn't retro. We're going to do uh, a TV thing on TV effects, in particular in the uh, area of superheroes. Uh, looking at... Flash and Arrow. I haven't seen Arrow yet because I mean, seen Flash yet, but I've seen the trailer. And my my daughters, who are incredibly hipper and cooler than I am, tell me that it looks lame. So we'll see if that actually works out. Um, I thought it was going to be kind of interesting. And uh, we're also going to be tackling next on the show Maze Runner, which uh, is should be really really good. Looking forward to that. Um, Wes is a really interesting director. His first feature. Can't wait to see and talk about that. That's all coming up here on the show. You can see if. Everything uh, that we're doing over at FX Guide. And of course, if you want to follow me personally, I'm Mike Seymour on Twitter. Thank you so much for being with us, guys. Until next time, see you. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright 2012, FX Guide, LLC.